Our text this morning is Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5. And uh, it is a staggering verse, really. And uh, it draws together all of what we come to dwell upon, particularly this Christmas time. And, you know, friends, it's easy to get drawn into, you know, all the sort of trappings of the season, but to miss the wonder of the wider scope, the bigger picture. And uh, we know that many people in this world, they really give no thought to the amazing significance of the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. Nor do they understand the message of the gospel. And so they're taken up with all of the frivolity and the parties and the lights and the trees and the cards and the food and the shopping, but they, they don't see beyond that. And as believers, you know, there are times that we can get so familiar with these things that we lose that wonder and we can just miss the, the sheer magnificence of what took place when Jesus Christ was pleased to come. We know, of course, that there's no biblical requirement for us to celebrate the birth of Christ at this specific time of year, but we would say that it's, a, it's such a good opportunity to make the most of exalting Christ and to proclaim the truth of his coming. And when the community around us looks on, we don't want to be lacking in making much of Jesus Christ because he is so precious to us. And so it's an appropriate time for us to refresh our thinking about the real message, the glory, and the majesty of the first coming of the Savior. And so this text found in Paul's letter to the Galatians gives us a great overview of the coming of Christ into this world. It drops us into this amazing sweep of what we call redemptive history. God's glorious plan to rescue sinners like you and me set in place from before even the foundation of the world. And so there are three things that I hope you'll see this morning from this couplet of verses. The first is the, the time of Christ's coming. When the fullness of time had come. The second thing is the actual event of Christ's coming. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And then lastly, the great purpose of Christ's coming, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. So that's where we're headed this morning, those three things to see in this couplet of verses. So let's begin with the time of Christ's coming, when the fullness of time had come. Now that statement is so rich and full of a purpose and meaning, but it reminds us that time is created by God. Time is created by God. God created three things in the beginning, matter, space, and time. And they're bound together, matter, space, time. They are all under the sovereign control of God. Genesis 1 gives us the account of the start of all earthly and heavenly beings and before that creation there was no such thing as time it's also true that time is limited it will come to an end you know when our lord jesus returns there'll be no such thing as time he will stop the clocks as it were and all the calendars and once again there will only be eternity and god made time for a very special purpose 
It was in that in the course of history, his secret ideas and purposes and plans and intentions should be brought out and fulfilled upon this earth. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, put it so beautifully when he said, the earth is the theater of God's glory. And God purposed for that to take place. And everything of importance in the whole history of the world must happen on earth. That's not to rule out things that are happening in heaven and hell, but it's here on earth above everywhere else that God is manifesting his glory. Here is the, the great stage of strife between the powers of God and the powers of evil. And so time is God's creation which he made for the purpose of exhibiting himself, his attributes, and working out his plans and purposes for the good of his people and the glory of his own great name. And so in the fullness of time means that when God's purpose was ripe, when the appointed hour had come, when all of history beforehand had prepared for the coming of Christ at exactly the right moment, Jesus Christ was born into this world. And friends, that is so incredible. Jesus Christ at the precise moment, nothing accidental, nothing haphazard about God's providence or his working, Christ came exactly at the right time. You know, it is staggering to me to think of all that transpired in preparation for his coming. For around 4,000 years or so, history had unfurled and elapsed before the Lord Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Now we, of course, stand over 2,000 years after his coming. But all that time before, just think for a moment on how much preparation there was. How many things had to be put in their place? How many great events had to occur? But of all the events which occurred or will ever occur on the stage of human history, none of them is in any way comparable to the greatness of the coming of Jesus into the world. That is the, the climax of all of God's great purposes. It is that high point of all his thoughts, all his designs, all his intentions for the world. Now, friend, before that time of his coming, great nations had come, empires had emerged and then crumbled. Mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. You know, we saw, didn't we, how Daniel was given insight to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream and sort of vision. And so you had the Egyptians, they'd come and gone, and then the Babylonians, and then the, the Medo-Persians with leaders like Xerxes. Then the Greeks under Alexander had risen to great prominence and then faded. And then Rome, the Iron Heel, had crushed many under its feet. And it was at that time when the Romans ruled in the world that the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was born. Now, in the days of Augustus Caesar, that very first emperor of Rome, in his day, it was the appointed, foreordained purpose of God that our Savior and Lord should be born into this world. Such a glorious event, marked by the presence of many angels, giving their revelation in the presence of these believing, humble shepherds. Now, it's interesting, the ones who received the revelation of his coming, you know, we've commented on it many times, but it's always worth highlighting. It wasn't to the religious, to the high priest. It wasn't to the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It wasn't even to the apparent great Herod or Pontius Pilate this revelation was made. It was these poor shepherds looking after their flocks. And they were looking for the 
consolation of Israel. They lived in an evil day full of darkness and superstition and immorality. And they were given to believe. They were given to be those men of faith. It's upon them that the Lord had his eye and the revelation was given to them. For there is born to you, to you who believe this day in the city of David, a saviour who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. And so they go and they see for themselves and they saw not only physically, but they were given to see with the eyes of faith that that babe in the manger, Jesus, was the one who would save his people from their sins. There is a question that arises though. I don't know whether you've ever asked it. Why did God take so long before he sent his son into the world? Why did he wait all that time? Well, there's a sense of mystery in that. The secret things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29, 29. We cannot answer that in entirety, but there are at least some biblical insights in terms of this. You see, 4,000 years of history passed before Christ came. It's interesting because it seemed that with Adam and Eve, they expected the coming of the Savior almost immediately. You know, I don't know if you remember, but after the fall, after they'd sinned, God gave the promise that from woman, one would come who would bruise the serpent's head, Genesis 3, 15. It's often called the Proto-Evangelion, that first gospel proclamation, a promised deliverer would come, and that was given to them. And so at the beginning of Genesis 4, you then read that Eve gives birth to her first son and calls him Cain. But she says at that point in Genesis 4.1, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And so she may well have thought that this child was the promised one, that he was the Messiah. That's what the, the phrase seems to suggest. But if she did, she was mistaken. And there would be a lot more sinful history to pass because only in the fullness of time would he come. So why did he wait so long? All those years, all those dark, sinful years, the, the vast majority of the world in ignorance of the truth, given over to idols and all manner of things. And apart from the Jewish nation and a, a tiny few Gentiles who would take up the Jewish position in Old Testament times, the world as a whole lived and died in ignorance, in, in lostness, in darkness. Well, may I suggest to you that part of the reason why God waited so long before he sent the Messiah, was that the exceeding sinfulness of sin might be seen. Romans 7.13 sees Paul indicate something of this in a, in a very personal sense. Sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Do you know, there are many who don't want to talk about sin they only want to talk about the easier, more popular things. That's true in churches. But one of the reasons God purposed for those years to pass was that the world could see what sin is and the wickedness of sin. Think of the events before the worldwide flood or Sodom and Gomorrah, all the brutal time of the judges. And so you could go on. The seriousness of sin. And the danger is, that even today, dear friends, we can have a poor view of the gravity of sin according to Scripture. Sin is often described only as a, a type of mistake. 
you know, something that could, you know, just sweep it under the carpet, a little bump in the road, and an unfortunate mess that has, you know, caused some difficulty between us and God. No, dear friends. The Bible says that sin is utterly dreadful. It's an awful thing. It is rebellion. It is enmity against God. It is incredibly serious. If you have a faulty view of sin, then you will inevitably have an undermined view of what Jesus came to do. The seriousness of sin. And another reason why God waited so long is to show that there was no human solution to that serious problem. The inadequacy of human wisdom in dealing with sin. You know, in Old Testament times throughout the pagan world, there were many brilliant minds. People of profound learning and knowledge and insight. And, you know, you can think of some like the, the Greek civilization and philosophy and learning and, and architecture and discovery. Many of their books are still available today and you can go and read them. But for all of their impressiveness and their genius, they could not find a solution to the problem of sin and to the longing in people's hearts. They couldn't deal with that problem which was so evident in the lives of the people. And in fact, it's often said that at one of the, the greatest sort of philosophical times in that time of Greece with Aristotle and Socrates and all those, that the suicide rate was at its highest. Because the more that they searched, the they more they saw the emptiness. There was no solution from human thought. They couldn't deal with the problem which was so evident in people's lives. All the greatest minds of all history could not solve the problem of sin. And so God waited to make it clear that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisest human mind, wiser than all of your Plato's and all the rest. And God's way of dealing with sin was so beyond any human thought, no person could ever have come up with that. It was a divine solution, a divine intervention. And so the time of his coming was just right. But then what about the actual event of his coming? How did God deal with sin? What was the only way that this solution could be provided for there to be hope in such a tragic and broken world? Well, it's the amazing action and intervention that God supplied in the fullness of time. He sent his own son, born of a woman, born under the law, you know, just think for a moment and ask yourself, what did it involve for God to send his son? Jesus Christ is the son of God essentially. We must not make a mistake here again. Many go wrong at this point. When did Jesus begin to be the son of God? Well, the answer is he was always so. It was not the incarnation at Bethlehem that made him the son of God. He had been already the Son of God. It wasn't his resurrection that made him the Son of God. The resurrection proclaimed him to be the Son of God. It did not make him the Son of God. Jesus Christ's sonship is an eternal sonship. He belongs to what we call the, the great Holy Trinity. And in order to be sent into this world, it meant that he, as God the Son, had to take our nature. He had to become a child first. He had to grow as we all had to grow. He had to mature as most of us have had to mature. He had to come to his full manhood and to live in this world. That's what is meant by God sending his son. 
And there was never an exhibition of the love of God that compares to this, that God sent his son, the son that he loved, the highest expression of his love for this world. And however we understand God's love for the world, we must never tone it down. We must never make too little of it. And although it's a great mystery how God could love such a world as we are, we cannot change the truth of Scripture, for God so loved the world. And the proof is that in the fullness of the times, he sent forth his Son on the great mission and the work and the mission to deal with sin, to save his people from their sin. That was his work. Sin is the one thing man can never solve. They tried to. They're still trying to, by a million and more different processes and methods of their own devising, none of which worked. And the method that God devised and appointed has worked and does work. God sent his son. He's our only hope, Jesus Christ. What does it mean that he was born of a woman? Well, it means that he was born of a woman, born of the Virgin Mary. Again, dear friends, these are such key things that we need to understand. And so let me ask you, do you understand why Jesus had to be born of an unmarried woman? You know, if the Lord had proceeded from two parents, of all of us do, our Lord would have inherited the sin of Adam. All who are born by ordinary generation or birth have the sin of Adam imputed to them even before they leave their mother's womb. They're born in Adam's covenant. They have the sin of Adam reckoned to them. They have his depravity conveyed to their nature. And therefore, there had to be a virgin birth. It was not a question of option. There was no alternative. Mankind needed a second Adam, a last Adam, a new Adam, a new root of mankind into which we were to be grafted in order to deliver us from the consequences of the broken law or broken covenant under Adam. And it is a, a stunning and marvelous wonder that the angel Gabriel visits Mary and explains to her that she is highly favored because she was to become the mother of our Lord. What a privilege she had. The mother of the Son of God according to the human nature, not according to the divine nature. As one explains, as to his divine nature, Christ had a father but not a mother. And as to his human nature, he had a mother but not a father. God did not give her this blessing without an announcement as to explain to her what it was. See the graciousness of our God. You know, he didn't force it upon her. He explained to her she was to have this privilege of bearing the Savior. And it was her extraordinary privilege to be the mother of the Messiah promised all through the history of her nation from the beginning. And how does Mary respond? We read it together. Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the Holy Spirit worked and the child became hers to carry in her body. But there was no transmission of sin from her to the child that she was to bear. And so Christ's human nature came from her body as with every child from the mother's body but not the sin. There was no transmission of the sin because there was in this case the miraculous presence of the Holy Spirit purging, cleansing, protecting the development of the human nature of Christ so that the Holy One was born without sin. 
Hebrews 7, 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, perfect. That's what Paul speaks of here when he says that Jesus was born of a woman, the perfect sinless Savior who was fully God, fully man, without sin. You say, okay, well, what does it mean that Jesus was born under the law? What does that mean? Well, again, each of these expressions demands our attention. So think of this. Our Lord, in virtue of his godhood, is the lawgiver. And so in that sense, he is above his own law. God is not subject to his own law. The law is for angels and men, as it were. The Ten Commandments, the moral law, the way that we should live, to love God with all our heart, our neighbors, ourselves. Our Lord Jesus Christ in his divine nature is and was above the law. He's perfect. But when he took our nature, he placed himself under the law. God condescended to subject himself to the law. He condescended to live those 33 years in subjection to the very law of which he was the author and the giver. He put himself in a situation where he was obliged to fulfill the law, every part of it, which he did. No one could accuse him of any sin, not even his enemies and how they tried. How they tried to bring him down, but they couldn't even find a hint of sin, nothing to bring against him. Our Lord was sinless in every aspect of his life, throughout his life, from the cradle to the cross, and he fulfilled the law. In Matthew 3.15, the Lord Jesus says that he must fulfill all righteousness. He had to keep every ordinance of God, every detail, every minor point in body, mind, heart, thought. He was flawless. And it's vital that he was. Do you know why? Because he was living the life that we could never live. And his active obedience, his righteousness, is an essential part of the salvation that he would bring. He was our representative before the Lord, before God. He was living our life for us. Achieving our righteousness by his own obedience, which he would then give to us which would become ours. So great was the purpose of God in dealing with the sin of the world. Now, friend, even that doesn't exhaust the meaning of the phrase born under the law. Let me tell you a little bit more. He subjected himself and was made under the broken law. And you say, well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, because of sin, he was under the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Throughout his life, he had to suffer the consequences of the law which we have broken. And so life in this world for the Lord Jesus was constantly full of pain and sorrow and anguish. He was a man of sorrows. Why? Because he constantly saw the consequences of a world broken and ruined by sin. Even the very best in this life was marred by sin. Do you know there are some who really dislike this element of teaching? 
because they object to it. They just want to make the Lord Jesus with a, with a constant smile and jovial and, and fun. People don't like sadness. But although the Lord Jesus knew times of great joy, we know that. His time he was marked by sorrow. Every time he saw sinners sinning, broke his heart. You know, if you're a believer, maybe you've known just a small taste of this. You see the brokenness around. You see people hurting each other. You see the injustice and the abuse. You see the cruelty of people. You see the foolishness and the selfish behavior, criminality. You see that. You see the consequences of sin and you, you feel it. Every time you hear the name of the Lord Jesus cursed and blasphemed, saddens. It's not how it was meant to be. And sin ruins. And the Lord Jesus knew that in a way that we cannot fathom, friends. As one explains, he was living above the angels, essentially in his holiness, and yet living amongst sinners like ourselves. No wonder life was a pain from birth to death. Supremely on the cross, he met and dealt with by his death the consequences of the broken law and by dying for it, he mended the law for his people. He repaired our relationship to the law. God sent him forth in order that the law and the problem of the law should be dealt with. Jesus Christ was actually born, born of a woman, born under the law. And then thirdly and finally as we close, why did he come? The great purpose of Christ's coming. Why did he come? Why was he sent? Verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. To redeem sinners like you and me, that we might become sons of God. But you know, there are times when you read something like that, and it just renders you speechless. To be made a son of God. Redemption and adoption. Redemption, what does it mean? Jesus came to redeem. And that word means to buy back. You know, we were sold under sin by nature and the payment had to be made in order to recover us and the payment was made to the justice of God. Now again, there's something that needs to be clarified. There is a very popular teaching going around at the moment in evangelical circles which says this. It says that when the Lord Jesus paid the debt, he paid the debt to the devil and paid the ransom to Satan in order to release us from the grip of Satan. Well, that is unbiblical. It is a total nonsense. The devil was a usurper, evil, the enemy. He was defeated at the cross. He was not paid off at the cross. The debt was paid to the justice of God. By his holy life and his propitiatory death, our Lord satisfied all the claims of law and divine justice and so is able by his one death to buy back his people from all nations and tribes and tongues to bring us to God. You know, even in this life, we are not simply saved sinners. We have something above that great privilege. Great indeed though it would be we have something more. We have this further privilege that we are in receipt of the adoption of sons. So we are redeemed, we are bought back, 
and we are adopted. Now, what do we mean by adoption? Well, it's something more than being justified. To be a son of God is more than to be a saved sinner. What Christ intended to do by becoming one man was to make us the very sons of God. And this he did by his finished work. John 1, 12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Romans eight fourteen. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. 1 John 3, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Every believer is now adopted into the family of God. We have a right as Christians to look upon God, to know God as our heavenly father. One who loves us with a perfect love. One who will care for us and provide for us and keep us from falling in this world. One who is preparing a glorious feast in heaven for us when we leave this world. Adoption is a legal arrangement whereby those who are in another family are admitted into a different family. They were born into one family, but by this legal arrangement, which we call adoption, they are put into another family. And this other family here is the family of God. We were born, as it were, into Adam's fallen race, into the clutches of Satan, but Christ has both redeemed us by his blood and also placed us into this highly honored position in which we, dear friends, are the very sons of God. And the name of God is upon us. We are his. We belong to him. He is our father. And friends, that's why the Christian cannot behave like the world. We must behave in a manner worthy of the God who is our father. We must remember whose we are. Whom we serve, what has been done for us. Because all of this was the great purpose, not just to save us from our sins, but to bring us into that position of adoption, to be into the family of God and all the consequent blessings of that. To be heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Do you know, they are just so incredible. Those blessings are just beyond what we can fathom at this time. We just get glimpses of how staggering this is. Why did Christ come into the world? To give us this supreme gift of being saved and of becoming the sons of God by faith in him, in his glorious person and work. So when it speaks about the fullness of time and the coming of Jesus, it's no minor thing. It is the most staggering thing that has ever taken place. And so I ask you as we finish, are you redeemed yet by Christ? Or are you still in Adam's family? Have you become part of that spiritual family? Have you been adopted into the family of God? Are you a child of God this morning because you are united to Jesus Christ by faith? Are you looking to the Son of God alone to make you a friend of heaven? Are you looking to him to take you to heaven when you finish this earthly course? 
Are you relying on this Son of God for yourself? Is he your only hope? Have you understood why he came? Made of a woman, made under the law. Are you resting your hope of eternal life upon Jesus Christ? Friends, if you're not, you have no hope. But if you are, you have eternal hope. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And these are the questions which you and I must face when we consider the wonder of his coming, such a saviour. And how blessed we are if we know him. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And friend, if we know the significance of that, then we will indeed be a worshipping people and a thankful people. Amen.